0: back to The Will Be Movies. This is a podcast covering 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is Volume 3, 1990-1999, to 1999. and Episode 68 will be The Fifth Element, which is, in theory, a French sci-fi movie that sees a cab driver named Corbin Dallas happen upon Lilo, who purports to be a supreme being and the only chance of stopping impending Armageddon, It is from a creator who we're just gonna throw up all of the content warnings right at the start because I have many things to say about Luc Besson, and I presume my co-host will as well.
1: His name is Ben Phillips. Benjamin, how are you? I'm good. I've had a heavy day in the office, and now we're here to record a movie, which... This is on the light end of what we're
0: covering? Sure, the movie is light as hell. I would love it if we were just talking about the light movie that I have watched dozens and dozens of times. However, I would be compromising my integrity if I did not acknowledge and uh, decry the real world ramifications of Luc Besson's existence. But yeah, I mentioned it just there. Uh, This was picked by me. It is a movie I've seen, as I said, dozens of times. One
1: that is on television in the UK a lot. What channel used to have it on? Five. Five, because it's definitely one of those movies that I'm like, I don't know when I first saw it. I just know that I've embedded this movie into my subconscious just from like passive. Like very rarely have I ever sat down to watch this movie mm. From start to finish. <laughs> I'm, uh, normally, I'm like phasing in where it's like the opening sequence is probably the part of this movie I've seen the least. Yeah, and I think I, that's I... a
0: lot of people's experience actually that like they know it from Lilou's resurrection onwards. You know, you mentioned like absorbing it subconsciously or whatever. The general sequence of her standing on the edge of that building and then jumping off that was used everywhere to plug. The advent of DVDs, all sorts of shit like that. It, it was a shot that got used a fuck ton, and then the movie in general has become so mimetic, like multi-pass and and, and all of that fun stuff.
1: I wonder how much of it is a European thing, though, because obviously. So I'm looking at the box office for this movie, yeah. and it grosses in the U.S. I'm trying to see what the domestic domestic total is: 63 million of an overall growth. Gross of two hundred and sixty. so two hundred million dollars of this movie comes from yep. overseas, and obviously that makes sense. This is a, a very European movie. Yes, <laughs> uh, but it's just—it's just one of those interesting things where. I don't know what the U.S. imprint of this movie is. I think it has a legacy.
0: A lot of people cosplay as Lilo. I think, as I said, multi-pass and all of that kind of stuff is quotable, and you do see it around and everything. Yeah, I just, I guess, at the time, it's a tough sell. I mean, you've got Bruce Willis but it is, it is incredibly European. It is very okay. non-standard art design. Even, you know, it's not even like you can cling on to, like, well, there's a bunch of Europeans in it, but it looks like Star Wars, which we will have to address, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a movie that, like I said, is constantly on the, on the TV over here. I would have at some point recorded it and just watched it the same sort of half-dozen VHS (laughs) recordings that I had over and over again. It's just a fun good time. It's a silly sci-fi romp that is super European. (laughs) It's in rare air because it won a BAFTA, it won a Cannes, it was nominated for an Oscar. However, on the opposite end of the spectrum, Mila Jovovich and Chris Tucker were both nominated for Golden Raspberries for Worst Actor and Worst
1: Actress, respectively. Worst New Star for Chris Tucker. Sorry, Worst New Star. Who just to complain about that Worst New Star Award because Chris Tucker gets awarded that and gets nominated <laughs> for that in 1997 and the Vassys <laughs> like to do this thing where like The Rises are a piece of dirt anyway well, yeah. they're the most like basic ass bitch responses to bad movies that are rarely like the actual worst movies it's just kind of like what's, what's something we can dunk on and so you end up with things like Twilight being nominated it's like just let the teen girls have their yeah it's <laughs> you know own.
0: yeah like the, the metalheads that hate
1: One Direction so much it's like alright calm the fuck down like... but yeah so Chris Tucker gets nominated for the fifth element of Money Talks this is very early on in his career obviously he's got Friday in 1995 yeah. which is like a big breakthrough performance and so i giving him a Razzie Award for Worst New Star on top of the fact that he's in fucking Jackie Brown I
0: know
1: I know you like to like lump all these movies together but you <laughs> really like you're lumping two <laughs> of these movies together and then you're basically going like oh we have to ignore he's in a fact. white movie now <laughs> <laughs> we've <been laughs> always a legitimately good movie but, and to, to jump from that like Chris Tucker's career is wild because mm-hmm. after this movie Money Talks he does Jackie Brown then he does Rash Hour and it's like Cool, I'm retiring. I just do rush hours now. And then he vanishes one. off the face of the fucking earth, and then he comes back doing stand-up again. And well, I rush didn't hour, watch it, no, but someone said it's actually kind of okay, his stand-up. Rush hour one, rush hour two, yeah. rush hour three, yeah. five-year gap, Silver Linings playbook Oh yeah. Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Mm-hmm. Nothing in five years. Nope, he
0: just vanished off the earth. And and that the Silver Linings playbook appearance was like unexpected as well. I... I want to say he had some personal issues. I don't know. This is not a Chris Tucker podcast unfortunately. No, I mean
1: but he like we we we're just using the opportunity to talk about Merlin because obviously he doesn't show up until like the very very end of this movie in like a significant role and he is <laughs> the comic relief.
0: Mm-hmm. a in role
1: destined for Prince
0: but Prince uh, being the greatest musician of all time was not available due to touring
1: so, so Chris Tucker lands it makes sense because this movie is like i mean some of the reviews of the role in this movie where Chris Tucker plays it so gay he circles around to being straight again <laughs> i mean he fucks women it's so like canonical <laughs> It, 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 true but it's so queer coded it's it's weird and like yeah obviously it feels like it's written with Prince in mind but it feels like it's written with Prince in mind without understanding what makes Prince sexy yeah so some some behind
0: the curtain here Ben and I briefly were kicking about a music podcast in which I was going to talk at length about Prince. But yes, I feel growing up, when you're just a little bit too young, you lump Prince in with Michael Jackson, and even Michael Jackson, like, was a sex symbol at one time, but it's like, you think, oh, they're weird, they're effeminate, lololol. It's like, Prince was, like, one of the biggest sex symbols in the world for a long time. But it ended up being Chris
1: Tucker. A memorable role, if nothing else. It's certainly very memorable. Another one of those people who's been lumped in with, with the bad people being in Epstein's contact book, so ah. best, to, best to leave it there. Fun, fun times. And I suppose on
0: that front, I must say my Luc Besson thing up front. So, directed by Luc Besson, we'll get into how it all came about in a minute, because that's slightly lighter, but... So, you know, Luc Besson directed La Femme Nikita, Atlantis, Cold Moon, Leon, and The Messenger, the story of Joan of Arc in the 90s. He then basically... Doesn't direct anything until Lucy and Valerian, which are massive bombs. I assume Lucy was a massive bomb. I know everyone. Made no, fun Lucy's of it. a
1: No, hu- Lucy's a huge hit.
0: Fuck. Okay. I mean, you know, he writes Taken, he produces Taken, he writes and produces the Transporter, all this shit. But in the nineties, I mean, I can understand a lot of people fucking love Leon. And I can understand, someone might raise an eyebrow, why did you pick the fifth element over Leon? I didn't see Leon until I already knew who Luc Besson was as a person. And I am sorry, but I don't know how anyone can sit through Leon knowing who he is in real life, because... Definitely, at the very least, he is an incredibly creepy fucking dude. At the absolute worst, he is a multiple-time sex offender. If, by any weird stretch of the imagination, any of his legal representation are listening, legally, he has been cleared of everything. However, he married Anne Parillo, who is the star of La Femme Nikita. They get divorced after five years and having two children. He begins dating Maewen Labesco when he was 31 years old and she was 15 years old. He married and impregnated her one year later when she was, if you can do the math, 16 years old. She has stated that their relationship inspired the events of Leon, which for me forever taints that movie. Just super fucking creepy. She plays in this movie, the opera singer, the diva. While filming The Fifth Element, he leaves her for Mila Jovovich, the made-up language that Lilu speaks. He made that up, he taught it to her. They write each other letters and speak to each other in this made-up language every day. They get married and are divorced within two years. He then has three children by a fourth wife, who he's been with since 2004. In that time, he has been accused of rape and inappropriate conduct by multiple actresses, a former assistant, two students of Cité de Cinéma, and a former employee of his company. Again, for legal reasons, he has been cleared of all of this, but fuck that dude forever, quite frankly. However, I really like the film, element, so we're gonna talk about it anyway. But, yeah. Obviously, the whole thing is like, where there's smoke, there's fire. Absolutely. (laughs) That's too many people from too many places, and a dude that has basically not made movies for twenty years and it's like Come on. Hey, he um. made the Arthur trilogy <laughs> he, did, he did and like Literally. even if you want to take away all of the, the allegations dating a 15 year old when you're f- 31 is fucking creepy and Ill- should be illegal but apparently is not
1: yeah. yeah so I mean so obviously the thing that kind of has to be spoken about is that this movie is like his teenage fan fiction
0: mm-hmm.
1: so uh, he writes this, He writes the first version of this script in in when he's 16 years old yes he, Doesn't he come conceives
0: this world as a teenager to escape his mundane life, blah blah blah. Doesn't doesn't film it until he's 38. And like, the movie still feels incredibly juvenile. I think that it is the product of a teenager's mind shows in every frame, in both good and bad ways. I don't think it is entirely a bad thing. There is a sense of wonder and frivolity that is so often lacking from this genre. It's just then there's also some just, like, downright childish antics going on. I mean, yeah, like, the comic relief character is a man who just runs around kind of, like, screaming
1: in a high-pitched voice. Yes,
0: it is a a lazy send-up of Michael Jackson and Prince,
1: but without any of the, like, nuance or understanding of those people. But again, it's not to say that I don't enjoy this movie. I've seen this movie a billion (laughs) times. Just watching it from start to finish, I was kind of taken away saying, like, I want every movie to exist to look like this. More sci-fi movies to take risks and look like this. Yeah, he, he was very adamant from the beginning. He wanted
0: it to be really, really well lit, all scenes in daylight, or at least in very bright areas. Um, the production design itself will we'll get to, but... Or well, in fact, you know, I mean, so development begins in 1991. He hires Jean-Mobius Chirard and Jean-Claude Messier, uh who are famous, iconic French comic artists responsible for Blueberry and, in Messier's case, Valerian, which, you know...
1: May sound familiar. It's so obvious that the Inkle and Valerian are like in, deeply embedded in kind of the visual look of this. Have, have you read either of those? I don't know how much no, of a band no. SNA no. person you are. The Inkle is fucking incredible. Yeah. I've read the Inkle, and I've read the Meta Barons, which isn't Mobius, but it's still that same world, and it's just mm. that kind of, like, working I mean, like, you, you look at, like, the first page of the Inkle, which mm. is the main character, John Dufour, falling down through this, like, space sector with, like, taxis and stuff running around, and you're <laughs> like, oh, this is literally just fucking,
0: yeah. fucking Bethelda. So, even though he, he brings them on board, hires them to do production design, and I, I, I guess he pissed Mezier off less, which is why he ends up making Valerian later, but he says how, like, So famously, Star Wars aped Valerian quite heavily, and he he got no credit, but um, Lucas was, like, a known fan of Valerian. He has, like, first editions of Valerian in his home and everything. Stuff that's visible on camera while he's talking about Star Wars. But, you know, he hires both of them to do production design. Giraud later unsuccessfully sues him for plagiarising the Inkle, and I assume that is because they didn't get paid extra once the movie actually got made. Like, he put them on his staff to produce, like, 8,000 drawings, some of which I assume become that, like, sacred textbook um, that Ian Holm has. But yeah, I think once it actually gets made, like, several years later, because production does shut down in 1982 it's customary if stuff if something gets picked up you get a bonus essentially or or a, or a premium or whatever you want to call it and he did not offer them that
1: so yeah I mean you have to imagine there's little things like maybe they did all the design work for this and like the stuff they're designing is the stuff on the on the spaceship or the alien beings and stuff like that and then yeah. you literally get to a city with, with cars flying around You're like oh this is just fucking the ankle in the <clears> same way <throat> that like when you get to Current on or whatever the name of the planet is in, in the, the, the prequel trilogy for Star Wars, and you're like, oh, this is just the Inkle as well. I yeah. remember the first time I saw that page, and it was like, something snaps into place when you're like, oh, everyone's ripping this thing off. It's in the same yeah. way that when you watch, like, Satoshi Kon yeah, movies, yeah, and then yeah. you end up watching like Darren Aronofsky, you're like, oh, you would be ripping off this, like, one director your entire career.
0: Like, I get it when Americans rip off anything foreign, because it's like, well, we can just claim this as original, basically, but like, for Besson to rip off a French comic artist, and Like, there have been comments made over the years that Besson is basically the most Hollywood-ass European director ever. And his stuff is palatable to a Hollywood
1: audience. But yeah, it just sucks but on top of all it the, the other stuff. Because obviously, obviously, you can get away with it in yeah, the US yeah. because even though we talk about comic movies a lot, and I have talked about comic movies a lot on this mm-hmm. on this network, no one is going to be up in arms when people don't credit comic book artists because no one has been no. up in no. arms. People don't. The number comic of them that stuff. don't get
0: invited to premieres of the movies that they essentially wrote and designed for that don't get thanked in the credits, that don't get a kickback, that don't get bonuses or whatever—it's fucking
1: disgusting. Thing. On the flip side of that, I do feel like the European comic scene with, with band DNA and everything like that, because it is like because those comic books outsell anything mm-hmm. that the US market is putting out because yeah. Asterix and Obelisk and, and, and Tintin and stuff like that are just so deeply embedded in European culture and like yeah. everyone fucking owns copies of those things. You mm. can't really get away with ripping them off without people being able to notice or these least <laughs> the Europeans not being up in arms. I mean I mean probably my favourite band SNA adaptation ever is is the adventure of Tintin the, uh, the Steven Spielberg movie? Mm. Just because I feel like it... I mean, obviously it's being all CGI, but it's kind of like it's hat tipping itself to it, but also kind of not being a rip off. And uh, it, uh, just mean, it, it's interesting that like when you see these attempts at doing it, they are a lot more kind of slavish than. Mm. American comic adaptations are at this time, and I don't know if that's because there's like an embedded idea of what these things have to be, hmm. and then you get the fifth element, which is this fundamental thing where it's like, oh, I'm just going to take the the spirit of of the, these two massive titans of of Mandesney, and yeah, and basically know. rip them off in, in a lot of ways in, in a visual sense, and yeah, uh,
0: like even like um, Messier had a book, Circles of Power, which has a taxi driver flying around a future New York and stuff like that. And, like, you know, you mentioned that
1: they're more slavish to it, like... Have you seen Valerian, the movie? I've not seen Valerian, the movie. Okay. I've, what I've heard is that, like, there's a fantastic opening sex, section... Yeah. And then, kind of, the movie kind of devolves into to, to normal bullshit. But then oh, I yeah. also have other friends who absolutely, like, think it's incredible, so... I think
0: it's beautiful. I really wanted to like it, and they made that harder and harder for me as it went on. Like, I was massively bummed out, because it's like, oh, I'm getting Fifth Element vibes, and then you realise why. But, arguably... That is, like, the result of... I mean, I haven't I haven't read Valerian, so I don't know how closely it's being adapted, but notably, like, co-writing screenplay for Fifth Element of the movie is Robert Mark K- uh, Kamen, who did the Karate Kid, Lethal Weapon, the Transporter, Taken, the latter two, with Besson. But it's like, did he give it that little bit extra... In terms of like Hollywood sensibilities and then Valerian is just completely unhinged bullshit essentially. <laughs> but then
1: I also have to I also have to wonder there's that kind of element of these kind of movies fell out of vogue in a big way after yeah. the 90s. So like so like to, to do this and use this as a springboard into our box office conversation. So obviously <laughs> this movie gets produced for 9 million dollars, but then obviously there's massive amounts of asterisks attached to all of that. I know you've seen credits that this might be one of the most expensive movies of all time. The, what
0: I was getting confused about there is it was the most
1: expensive movie outside of Hollywood ever produced right. at the time cuz yeah, cuz Waterworld is a couple yeah, years before yeah, this, yeah. which is a, a stupidly expensive and then it makes <laughs> Two hundred sixty-three point nine million dollars overall. In terms of its opening weekend, it obviously opens number one. It's a big flashy sci-fi movie opening in May. It opens ahead of Father's Day. Breakdown. Austin Powers: International Man of Mystery in its second weekend. But then obviously, the first Austin Powers movie is a little quietly like independent comedy movie. It's the second one that kind of the awesome. best one. <laughs> Volcano. Liar, liar. Anaconda, which was also nominated for a lot of Razzies. Like, like just a kind of general weird... A schlocky kind of, summer. Yeah, exactly. And then also, like, hanging out at number 13, you got Star Wars Episode 6, which is the, the kind of the re-release they're doing in 1997 in the right. run-up to st- Episode 1 coming out for an important bit of science fiction context, where <laughs> you have to imagine in some way these guys are like, quickly, we need to get a movie out that's going to be there before Star mm-hmm. Wars. Obviously, they beat it by two years, but... I think Star elements Wars. of the Mangalores,
0: uh, the, the mercenary aliens in this... I think elements of them were reused for production of Star Wars Episode One. Makes sense. I mean, they both filmed in London, didn't they? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Against um, Besson's wishes. He wanted it to be filmed
1: in France, but it's like, no, fuck you. This is so expensive. You're filming it on a soundstage. I mean, I don't know what it is, and it probably is partly the kind of, like, it needs to be a franchise, but, like, you don't give this kind of money to these kind of original concept ideas at this point. And mm-hmm. when people do, they normally bomb so hard, and, like, you look at the things so it's Valerian, it's Jupiter Ascending, like all these movies are flopping in such an extreme way and all of them look very similar or have very similar vibes and it's very obvious they're going for this kind of like earnest, very like obvious kind of like big, brash science fiction movie and I think I don't know if it's like people just want more subtlety or they don't want things to be as in their face like Marvel has kind of like mm. trained people to think in a certain way you want the way that people kind of rebel against Star Wars Episode 8 where it's like oh no I don't like these kind of like big obvious cartoony or like the big, the big bold moments that kind mm. of take you out there and make you realise you're watching a live action cartoon I think people are kind of rebelling against those yeah. kind of like visual ideals at this point.
0: It's bright, it's multi-ethnic it, it sort of rejects some of the tropy futuristic elements like some of the the costuming is like clumsy and weird and yeah it's very like non-standard alien designs but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about all of that at length in a minute but it is a shame um because you know not everything should look like this because that's not special but thinking about the last 20 years particularly of sci-fi it is just drab blues and grays and it
1: is moody and it is striving for some faux realism. Um, and, and again, everything everything is based on, like, if you get a sci-fi thing done nowadays, it's probably based on some YA property or it's based yeah. on a comic book. And when people come to the table with an original science fiction thing, everyone begins to go, like, yeah, but it's not very good, so that's shit on it. It's like, no, we need to encourage some of these to exist so that we yeah. get maybe better ones. And I'm not saying that, like, people need to go out there and go Jupiter Ascending is a secret unheard masterpiece but But if we want more movies like this then we do need to sit down for the bad ones and then I mean that's the I've heard Alita is actually very good I struggle to believe that but go on I mean again I haven't seen it but it's just that thing where like a lot of people are going like no Alita is kind of like a good version of this and obviously Alita is based on a book but it isn't based on like a long-standing YA novel series it isn't based on on a comic book it's is AI based on anything? No, AI is just like the original Kubrick idea mm. that's got the weird mismatch of like. Then Spielberg comes in to finish it, and obviously, yeah. no two directors have got more different sensibilities <laughs> than Kubrick and Spielberg. So let's let's finish off this kind of like preamble before we get into the actual meat of the movie and, and multi-passes and whatnot. With <laughs> I, uh, I hear a very successful movie came out in 1997. But... So let's let's just run down from ten to one right. the box office. So number ten. Full Monty, 261. Fifth album number 9, 264 million. Hey. My Best Friend's Wedding, 299 million dollars. Mm-hmm. Liar Liar, 303 million dollars. Obviously. As Good As It Gets, 314 million dollars. Jack's Back. Air Force One, 315 million dollars. Fuck the Russians. Tomorrow Never Dies, 340 million dollars. Add a decent bond, not great. A movie that was at one point on this list, Men in Black, $588 million. That would have been fun. Lost World, Jurassic Park, Spielberg's, like, one of his big forays back into cinema after winning his Oscar, $619 million. And then the number one at the box office in 1997, a tiny, tiny movie called Titanic, grossing two point two billion dollars was that the first billion dollar movie it must have yes, been right yeah, like, loop, so, yeah. I mean obviously like you've got things where like, there are movies that came up beforehand that hit a billion afterwards so like Lion King is a billion dollar movie right. now yeah. but it was the first movie to hit a billion dollars in it's original yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: theatrical run Disney put out six billion dollar movies in one year recently uh, in 2019 it, it, or something, something like
1: that something to the level because what it's, it's, it's Aladdin yeah. it's Endgame Captain Marvel It's Toy Story. It's Toy Story and it's Star Wars and Frozen. So, seven. (laughs) Surely one of those didn't do it or did they all
0: manage it? Anyway, right. So, seven separate billion dollar movies from one studio. So, we are so desensitized to what a giant number that is now. But, yes,
1: Titanic, quite the fucking hit wild to think that like there was a point in time where in 2008 you're sat there going like wow I can't believe Dark Knight is going to be the third movie to hit a billion dollars. I know and now it's just yeah It's a yearly occurrence. I mean again like two years after the Dark Knight, Alice in Wonderland One Wonderland takes a billion dollars and that's I think a... that's the kind of the moment where you go like oh this is irrelevant now yeah. and why you kind <laughs> of need to resort back to the adjusted for inflation index which still would have movies like Titanic really really high because like Titanic is such an absolute monster hit like 1.5 billion dollars at the international box office this is a three hour fucking movie that people just could not get enough of there
0: would be stories uh, you would hear it like I've seen it 50 times and stuff like that
1: um, I mean I was actually talking about like apropos of nothing talking about it, about it with a friend last night and it's like I know people don't like the length I know people hate how cheesy years but like dear lord it's kind of like an, an abject lesson in kind of like how to set up and pay off everything in your movie the movie is literally going like we are going to show you in the first hour of this movie what exactly is going to happen when this boat's going to sink so when the boat's going to sink you know exactly what's going to happen and when and that's going to be like all the driving of, of tension because you know exactly where people shouldn't be in this giant fuck off boat and plus was, they bang it, in a car and that was. plus they bang in a car I mean, I mean I know it's kind of like cliche to say but I think we've definitely circled around where like it was definitely a popular thing to do in the, in the 2000s you know like Titanic's actually bad uh, yeah. because women like it and it's like Titanic's a good movie and that's, what, like, that's kind
0: of what we were talking about at the beginning is like people rebelling just that little bit too hard against something just because it isn't targeted directly at you and it's like just let people enjoy things and fuck
1: off I mean, obviously like you can you can quibble whether or not you think it's like the best picture winner of that year being the, the 11 Oscar wins of, of whatever but to say that it didn't work some level of magic on people is yeah. being incredibly disingenuous to yeah. to a movie that is from a mastercraft person I mean, and again so is this movie in a lot of ways like mm. I think this movie is exactly what Luke Besson wanted it to be. Yes, um,
0: yeah, so, like, just to very quickly finish off, like, the how it came about thing, like, it does, it does shut down for five years, because they can't get financing, he is projecting it to cost 100 million, he makes Leon gets shitloads of money for that columbia pictures are like okay we're interested he trims the script he shaves 10 million off the budget he says i'm gonna cast a less famous person because he approached bruce willis and mel gibson in in the early 90s mel gibson turns it down bruce willis is like "Mm, maybe but i just made hudson hawk so my career's in the toilet at the moment no risks for me and then when production starts back up one of these stories that is like, I'm not sure I believe this is true, but he, Luc Besson is in the room with a producer from Columbia when Bruce Willis calls that producer to talk about a different movie. And Luke Besson says, oh, can I just say hello? Tells him that Fifth Element is starting back up again. Unfortunately, we're going to have to go with a cheaper actor who, by all of my research, was Jean Reno of Leon, which would make sense. Bruce Willis pauses for a few moments and then essentially says, let me read the script and then maybe we can come to an understanding. He is not a cheap actor to cast, and from what I can gather, Luke Besson basically manipulated him into lowering his price tag, but... Hey, he casts Bruce Willis in his weird sci-fi movie. Um, he gets Gary Oldman back as a favour because he chipped in some money on a movie that Gary Oldman made. Gary Oldman has famously said he can't stand the fifth element and thinks it's bullshit, <laughs> that's the power of a favour. And then uh, Mila Jovovich wins a search of, like, 3,000 actresses or some ridiculous number they looked at. Elizabeth Berkeley was, like, really close to getting it, but Showgirls made her, like, toxic to Hollywood because of double standards, so... Yeah, Mila Jovovich gets it. Um, I think all of these are good decisions, and I think this movie probably doesn't. I mean, there's not nothing without those three, obviously the art design is tremendous, but I think yeah, having I mean, those three on board, yeah, yeah, and let's talk about that now. So, like, you know, we've gone over it, you know, it's, it's well lit, it's cosy almost. There is barely a recognisable location, vehicle, or object in this whole movie. Like, it is, they talk about crafting worlds and creating universes and whatnot.
1: Which is what makes it so jarring when there's the scene when they're, like, driving around and then you have the cops getting McDonald's. <laughs>
0: But at least it's future McDonald's, you know. (laughs) And they (laughs) cast
1: Mac McDonald to get McDonald's. I mean, come the fuck (laughs) on. that's the, like, the first moment where it's like oh okay this is they're getting some funding from product placement or this going to be one of those revelations where it's like no 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 those two McDonald's things they were just in there because they needed to like have some kind of thing where like yeah of course McDonald's are still going to exist in, yeah. in in 200 years time I don't think it's a tremendously deep movie but you can
0: argue there is some element of critique of capitalism and like obsession with technology
1: and political nonsense and all that it's, it's a weird one isn't it because yeah. for a movie that is all about kind of like the end of the world and stuff like that it's weirdly apolitical <laughs> yeah. like like, like, we have a future president, and, like, the only thing black is... black like, well, Come on. He, he is black, and, like, I don't, I, I don't even know. Like, it's a confederation of planets. So obviously, we've, we've yeah. made contact with aliens, and so now, from the prologue, the aliens are, like, our first contact with, with Outer Space.
0: Yeah. And fucking Luke
1: Perry in the opening gets fifth billing
0: with no fucking lines. Giant, like, Chozo-like aliens from Metroid, like, <laughs> humming around in <laughs> massive suits. So they are a perfect example of how weird and different this is. Like, they are these big... Bulbous, clumsy, non-beautiful things that just rock side to side on mass, and they're so fucking slow. And one of them literally gets sealed away to die because he can't get out of the door in time. He gets
1: cr- he gets crushed to death, right? That is that. Well, he puts death. his
0: hand through, and then certainly his hand gets crushed off. No, but because I have to see the door is big, does.
1: Like, I think that's the whole point of that scene. And it's, it's a scene that's always confused me since I watched it as a child. Is like, <laughs> well, he gives him the key, so why can't he just open the door and? let him out.
0: Because he has to make sure the key reaches the other side, like I don't yeah, know if like, it opens if from the, the inside the upside,
1: then you use the key, open it up There may not be out. a
0: lock on the inside yeah, but then But he's on the outside that he used the key on beforehand No, he's on the inside No,
1: but he gives the key to the outside
0: Yeah, but maybe he couldn't open it from the inside if he didn't pass the yeah, key I mean, through. I
1: mean, he's given the priest the key. So yeah, but the only
0: like with a second to spare and his hand gets <laughs> crushed off I don't know Look, there's a funny yeah, little I to... World War One joke. What more do you want from them? Are you right. German?
1: I want to see the I want to see the soup get crushed if he gets crushed today. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm thinking.
0: apparently there's one of these in a planet Hollywood somewhere. That's that's fun. But yeah, you know, like even those aliens, like they're supposed to be the like supreme intelligence in the universe, older than old, know everything, and they're just this they're really fucking weird. By the time
1: we're in like regular contact with aliens, <laughs> like they're just another alien species that's gonna come along. So like yeah. when their spaceship like flies down to Earth to come meet people about like the impending evil that's about to come, they just get blown up and everyone's like, Ah, okay, that's our sucks. Like, the alien, that sucks. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: call them and send flowers and apologize
1: (laughs) it's weirdly like obviously this movie is an end of the world drama uh-huh. But it's so thoroughly disinterested in that end of the world drama.
0: A lot of it takes place in in New York, but like, there's no like sweeping stock footage of various world capitals glancing I mean, at the television,
1: wondering what's going to happen. It takes almost two like almost the entire runtime for them to get to a point where they go, "Oh, we should probably personify this great evil and have a phone call between Gary Oldman and the great evil, or Mr. What's Shadow." Mr. Please Shadow. use his name. <laughs> A dark
0: planet that tries to blow up the world every 5,000 years or something like that. And it's gonna stand on a plinth the size of a person despite being a planet. It's very easy.
1: (laughs) You could pick holes in this movie till the cows go home, but the whole thing is it it carries itself with such an insane amount of confidence that you kind of just have to go like, I don't care. I'm I'm having fun whilst watching it. And like most of my complaints come around for the, the, the weird tonal mismatch, which I genuinely just take up to the fact that like it's made as a very slavish kind of like riff on band SNA which do have these kind of like weird, tonally jarring moments where it goes from like high drama to high comedy in the space of a thing and I'm not yeah. quite sure they like completely nail it. And then the next moment I'm like, Yeah, but then Gary Oldman sells a bunch of like weird, bumpy aliens, guns that can like fire at the same point <laughs> billions of times. <laughs> My favourite. Yeah, oh god, he's so good.
0: Even when slumming it as a favour, he is so good. The fucking ridiculous hat on that guy that tries to hold Corbin at gunpoint with the picture of the door (laughs) of the corridor,
1: and he's like, nice hat. So, should we run through the cast? Do do you want to start from bottom up and we go with, with Gary Oldman first and do the big three, and then we can kind of touch on other people later? Sure. So, Gary Oldman, where do you rank this in his, like, villain run of the 90s? He may hate it, but this is right up there with anything he's done, as far as I'm concerned. It's obviously, like, you look at his nineties and it's like, Lee Harvey Oswald in G Uh-huh. Fucking Dracula himself. Uh-huh. He's in Trope for Romance. He's obviously the, the villain of, of Leon as well. Mm-hmm. He yells uh, everyone, yeah. the villain in this, he's the villain in Air Force One, he's the villain in Lost in Space, he's yep. the villain in Hannibal, and really, like, he's got this run and it's not until he does back-to-back Sirius Black and James Gordon that he finally gets to kind of move away. (laughs) He becomes almost gentle old man instead of... Oh, you just hire Gary Oldman when you want vaguely chameleic, or chameleonic-like actor who can play a villain. The second phase of his career is a lot less interesting, because obviously the the cap point to that is now he basically just does like, I'm now playing Winston Churchill with a whole load of prosthetics and that's what I'm gonna win my Oscar for.
0: As far as I'm concerned, he is the mirror good of Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp is just aping his shit constantly. If you go and watch Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, you watch them play word tennis and tell me that is not just Johnny Depp. Tell me he didn't just study that scene and just go turn that into Jack Sparrow. Gary Oldman's just less
1: insufferable than Johnny Depp. (laughs) That's the only difference. Now you have to go away and watch the the, the underground scene from the Darkest Hour and, and tell me that's not incredible.
0: Look, look. I mean, right down to
1: taking these roles that make you cringe when they take them. Like they're the same person. Gary Oldman's always someone. I mean, I, I mean, I am one of the lone defenders of Mank in this world, so I understand what it's like <laughs> to be bewitched by a Gary Oldman performance. It's just, it's just funny to look at this like ninety and go like, wow, he really did just fucking pigeonhole himself. It's almost like there was this huge demand for let's get a whole, let's get British actors to play our villains and. <laughs> Alan Rickman was kinda of like, Yeah, I did it in Die Hard, I'm not gonna do it again. And Gary Oldman's like, give me every single one of those rocks.
0: He's like, Ray Fiennes ain't got shit on me. <laughs> but I mean, I look at this and I defy anyone who's like, Well, you can't like introduce a villain and make them compelling without making them the whole focus of the movie in in under two hours. Like bullshit you can't. Zorg is like
1: so one dimensional, but he's so good. It's a wild performance that, like, like, I don't know what the accent is. I don't know what he's trying to do. There's a scene in this movie where he almost chokes to death on a cherry.
0: He sure does. And his wacky little Flintstones buddy <laughs> just watches. Yeah. And he's like,
1: look at all these machines.
0: With this but yeah, weird just... hillbilly. And he forgets at one point in just his English at one point. is he's like, shh. Yeah. I, and then when he's talking to Mister Shadow, like the, the the blood, the yes, people the, bleed from like the top of their head or some shit because he wears this weird like I don't know how to describe it. It's like this see through plastic rubber thing
1: around half of his head that they like shave off the hair underneath it, so he's got like the weirdest kind of like bowl <laughs> cut. It's such a look, and haven't mentioned it. Jean Paul
0: Gaultier designed all of the costumes in the movie. Zorg is in like a fucking pinstriped green suit at one. point. (laughs) just all of these wacky outfits he's wearing but you know it's so easy to to do this like you know the first time you see him pretty much he fires a million workers including corbin if you connect some dots uh you know the arms deal absolutely fucking rules as he's demoing the gun um Twice they get you with this shot of him opening the crate that's supposed to contain all of the MacGuffin stones, and then he closes it and it's all on his reaction that you you see it. They even repeat that scene from Leon, where he stands there smoking in front of an explosion behind him (laughs) that is practical, not CG, so it fucking owns, and he looks like the coolest fucker in the world. (laughs) Just, it's great, and like, you know he rocks up to start filming a week after Bruce Willis has finished so they never share a scene together oh wow I I did not know that there is the briefest of moments which either what I've just said isn't actually true or they cut it together very cleverly when he comes back because he's trying to get the stones they get into a lift as he's getting out of one and they aren't on the screen at the same time but it's like could you you probably could have just cut that together it's a static set Um, but yeah they never share a scene they never meet he has scenes with Ian home he has scenes with uh, Jovovich but yeah
1: he, he never meets Corbin Dallas which is great <laughs> they make the villain work hard. I didn't even clock that whilst watching the movie the two, that they never even share a scene together Like nope. he probably isn't even aware that this guy is after the or anything like no. that, is he? Or that he works for him. That he
0: worked for him. Because um, they say, you know, we could maybe lay off one of the people, for, you know, some of the smaller cab companies. And then Corbin gets fired, like, moments later. I um, always just assume that was because
1: he broke the cab and got fired because... <laughs> well, you would was- have
0: to assume that played a role. In an original draft of the script, Corbin does violently murder him after his gun jams. Oh, oh no, he, he like beats the shit out of him and then they leave him stranded. And then he tries to call home and then his phone work doesn't work and he's just stranded on that planet. I don't See, know. but then I it just enjoy, sounds worse.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the enjoy the enjoyment of this is obviously like he's had this relationship with them This entire movie where he's like sold them guns and then they haven't gotten the stones, he's blown them up, and so now they're trying to like get back at everything like that. And so he then tries to blow up the space station and then stops it when there's five seconds left on the timer because it's the fifth element. Yeah, and then obviously, and also then,
0: even that scene so tense with him like dropping that little card down the back and like you know he's already set the bomb and we've had all of the drama of that and then he has to go back and disarm his own bomb and then the Mangalore set off a bomb of their own that starts with a five second time
1: <laughs> that's a great like kind of like payoff and comedic yeah. end to it all because it's like yeah no that works I'm, I'm happy about that I would be less happy if it was Corbin because obviously because then you have to start feeding in the things that like oh well Corbin's aware that he lost his job because of him it's like yeah. does Corbin even care at this point about uh, he just
0: says him? I'll get another job he doesn't give a shit he's only yeah. been driving a car for six months like <laughs> Zorg is a fucking clown he's also a billionaire like like, you know he it, it's just great shorthand and Oldman can do this in his sleep and this is
1: the ultimate evidence of it quite frankly <laughs> just great I, I i love Zorg so much he adds a great flavour to it it's, it's definitely the stuff that I remember the most from this movie Like apart from like the visual elements to it it's just like what is Gary Oldman doing <laughs> then we have Mila, Mila Jovovich 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 yes Ooh. as Lilu Minai
0: Lekaraiba Lemonai, Chai Ekba Disavap Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Have, you. have you been working on that for a while? No, I just, that was my first try. She has a weird career as well, because she's kind of like, her 90s are actually like very interesting, because like, it's stuff like *Days and Confused, Fifth Element, Zoolander is kind of like a cap to that. And then all of a sudden she's like, I do Resident Evil, I meet Paul W.S. Anson, and then that is my career from now on. <laughs>
0: I think this is the career of a European actor, quite frankly, like, they will do good shit and they will do terrible shit and there is no care for, like, public image or anything like that. I mean, she surely was attempting to be a, a, a big star in Hollywood or whatever, but, like, I feel she just takes work and, like, some of it's shit and it's just like, eh, whatever. Like, you know, I've heard people go to bat for, like, Ultraviolet as like, that's actually quite a good movie or whatever, and that, like, you know, she she's the star of Resident Evil and that's a constant paycheck for her and, you know...
1: Thanks to her husband and everything, but like, yeah, she's all over the place. Like, the thing is, like, that you have things where it's like she gets announced to be in Hellboy, and you kind of go like, ooh. Yeah, that's good casting. Like they're taking her away from Hellboy and they're giving her like this villainous role to do. And then the Hellboy movie is awful. And then like the next year she's back in Monster Hunter, which is again the exact same lane that the that the Three Musketeers and the Resident Evil movies fall down into, where it's just like if you're on board for the Paul W S Anderson ride, then you're probably going to have some fun with Monster Hunter. But if you're not into that kind of like, there's a video game that's in the background somewhere, but fuck any taking anything from the video game other than some <laughs> characters and stuff like
0: that's how that. they used to make video game movies. Like no nah, fuck you, we're taking one. T- tiny thing and fuck the
1: rest of it. If so you watch the Monster Hunter trailer and if you know what Monster Hunter looks like you have the game like, what the, what is happening? Like, this isn't any the video game. It's exactly like Resident Evil.
0: Like, of course that was the next step, wacky, but I think she's fantastic in this, even if there is something slightly <laughs> creepy about her role, but
1: she... What, what do you mean the movie ending with a sex scene between Bruce Willis and, and Mila Djokovic when she's playing someone who's functionally like five days old? Ah, eh, no, she's like 2,000 years old.
0: 5,000 years old. Is she? She's old as shit. Yeah, she was alive. And then... She remembers everything from before. Isn't She's coughing
1: for a while as She's well. 5,000. Anyway.
0: No, more that, like, on the surface, this scans as, like, oh, yay, a woman is the supreme being who saves everything and is an ultimate kick-ass machine. However, aside from one scene where she beats the shit out of all the Mangalaws, which owns. She basically doesn't take an active action at any point, and is just a passive object to be fought over, talked about, dismissed, and they make constant jokes about, oh, she's so hot, isn't she? Yeah, she's so hot, and let's get her naked every couple of minutes. I will give them the credit for not, like, you know, leering at her, but... It's
1: the least leering nudity that I could possibly imagine in a movie. Yeah. Like, everything is shot in wides, and like, the movie yeah. kind of, like, conspicuously looks away. But like, by the, comparison, uh, Point Break looks pervy. But
0: it's not in what they're showing it's in how they're talking about her you know it's like constant jokes about it and like she escapes that's that's an action as well but like from there she is like this hapless
1: dimwit is, is how they treat her it's, it's like, cause obviously she's supposed to be the supreme being and it's very obvious mm-hmm. that they're trying to angle for like the answer was she life, da- yeah she like downloads the entire internet into her brain uh-huh. and she learns english like, can... in like 10 minutes <laughs> Yeah, she learns English, she learns martial arts and all the rest of it, so this is how she gets to do it. And, like, she's she's Neo in the Matrix, like, downloading things off the internet. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> and it, but it feels like they kind of don't want to go too far with it, because it's like, well, then she becomes just a deus ex machina who can like solve every single thing Mm -hmm. that we've got in this movie and so they keep on sidelining her and it's like it's almost a shame that like the movie spends all this time like with her looking at the internet but it doesn't really see that her like disillusionment with the human race she has a sudden crisis of of of, uh, existential
0: crisis when she discovers what war is and it's like come on you're going through the alphabet literally a a to z because they have that dumb scene where bruce willis can't think of Three words that begin with V. Very beautiful is one of his. <laughs> and then she gets to W and discovers war. It's like, sorry, you didn't discover, like, fight, death, kill, murder.
1: Like, you know, any number yeah, I mean, like, of words it would, that come be before It'd be nice if they had more of those moments. Because obviously, like, the movie starts to try and seed it in the run-up to the end when, like, you have the moment where she when the diva dies and she has mm. that like very visceral moment where she starts crying because obviously like that they've been in contact or they know each other or like kind of like psychic waves from this person dying she also got shot and is by herself <laughs> she did also get shot but I, I do feel it's kind of like the yeah, way yeah, the movie yeah. was cut is, it's meant to imply that like she is reacting to this death of the person who's yeah, got yeah. The, the, the stones inside of her and it feels like that's when they start building it and it's like, it'd be really nice if the movie kind of like mm. took an opportunity to like not do she loves chicken look at her use <laughs> the, the gag- like <laughs> <laughs> like if you use those moments to kind of go like she's looking at the evil of humankind and kind of having a crisis yeah, yeah, yeah. she's it. weighing it up she's judging humanity
0: throughout the movie i know i say this all the time this feels like it should have been a miniseries <laughs> it feels <laughs> like it's a... an ongoing event where it's like this is what Lulu was learning about this week kind of thing and like the whole thing is leading towards this final judgment of hers but
1: They 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 stuffed a ninety minute narrative into it. Yeah, but that would make sense because obviously by the end of the movie they're so rushed when they're in that temple and they're like trying to sort everything out and she still won't awaken until like She's like, nah. Corbin, <laughs> until Corbin says that he loves her and love is obviously the key to it all. It's all very good, but it's just like, mm-hmm. I wish you had more scenes with Bruce Willis where it didn't feel like he was falling in love with a very passive woman that yes. kind of makes it a little bit gross. Yes. I wish there was more of you having this crisis of consciousness. But because the movie is moving at this breakneck speed, and because it's carried along by weird Gary Oldman performances and fantastic set dressing,
0: you kind of ignore it. Leila was also the first woman to speak in the movie, and that takes 20 minutes. However, counterpoint, I think Jovovich's, like, physicality when it comes to, like... I mean, the scene of her being resurrected is, is iconic, in my opinion. Like, you know, even, like, her being, like, stitched back together with, like, what at the time was, like, great CG and still looks, you know, okay... And then breaking out of that pod. I mean, before she breaks out, like, you know, breathing for the first time in however long and clawing around the thing and following the little camera when it goes away and her whole escape and all of that stuff. She just does... She has such an otherworldly vibe about her that just makes her so perfect for this. And I think that's what... She is almost winning in spite of the
1: failings of the script towards her character. Yeah, and that's what makes this so fascinating is the movie kind of makes a conscious choice to kind of we're going to put bruce willis everyday action hero who everyone knows and has seen in a billion movies at the center of this and everyone else is going to be weird and new and doing something different <laughs> like that they purposely ground the movie through bruce willis and that allows Jovich and oldman and tucker to do like these just <laughs> wild <laughs> big big things and i think that that's a key element to why this movie works is it's that, the like, fifth we, element of the movie <laughs>
0: podcast over see you next week she has such a presence to her like her mastery of the fake language is sublime she is just going and and, like Besson in no way warned Bruce Willis for anything she was going to say so all of his reactions to her where he's just sort of like smirking at her are like completely genuine you know please help and and multi-pass and all of that are all so good her like comically kicking the shit out of all the mandalors, taking the bow as the performance ends and there is this weird commitment to clever editing with like one scene informing the next and like dialogue playing off each other and you get like sex jokes with ruby and stuff like that and like they they do it a couple of times and particularly you know once they've got all four of them in play lilu kicking ass while (laughs) this impossible opera performance is happening um, is very cool. Very campy. Very not Hollywood. I mean, they would do a scene where a woman kicks the shit out of 20 aliens, um, but like, to have it be this sort of goofy thing and her take a bow at the end
1: kind of (laughs) thing is great, I think. I mean, it's just a really well cast movie, and you can tell that like she's gonna be a star based yeah. on watching her in this movie. And again, it's so important that you have someone to ground it against where I can't imagine
0: yeah
1: Jean Renault having the same kind of like effect on the movie because obviously like it'd be, it it's fun as a like a, I guess' it's like a a non call with Gary Oldman and Jean Renault back on the screen together but then it's like well then are you saying that Mila Djokovic is just Natalie Portman creators have one
0: idea and they say it over and over again Taken is just slightly fancier transporter and I don't care (laughs) what you say yeah, and I, I think Bruce Willis, like, to, to round out the big three, like, the reason he works is he is the only manly man in the film, and he seems godlike in comparison. He seems like he was dropped into this world. It seems like it's the last action hero. Um,
1: so I, I know we've talked about, like, what Bruce Willis is quote at this point, but it's wild to me to look at, like, what his credits are at this point and to go, like, was he really commanding? And obviously, like, he's got the Die Hard trilogy at this point, with the last one being... Two years beforehand, making about 366 million dollars. Obviously, that's nothing to sniff at. But then it's like it's number two highest-grossing movies. Look who's talking. Fifth Element is number three when it comes out. Die Hard 2. Pulp Fiction, 12 Monkeys. Each one of these kind of gets smaller and smaller and obviously understand that like the box office grows little by little but it does feel like he's coasting off of just his pure movie stardom at this point.
0: Yeah, he's a movie ass. Movie star ass movie star. Like, I will say this for him. He's he's always been down for weird shit and maybe it's like he's always liked a paycheck but like, We ignore everything he's done in the last, like, let's say 15, possibly even 20 years. But in that run of him being big, he did always do slightly weird movies.
1: I mean yeah you, you look at what his highest grossing movies are and it's like the year after this he's got Armageddon I'm not not saying it's a weird movie but it's no. definitely like kind of like a huge gamble. Like, not a huge gamble but it's like it's a huge movie that stars him and is kind of like his almost his calling card Yeah. his highest grossing movie is The Sixth Sense which is a weird fucking movie yeah. when you've read The script. he's got Unbreakable in 2000 I mean obviously he's done Pulp Fiction at this point and he's done 12 Monkeys he yeah. ends up doing stuff like Looper and Sin City like he is always up for doing the weird stuff it's just now he's at a point where <laughs> he's doing all these red box movies and being charged two million dollars a day to kind of like be on set and it's like I miss when Bruce Willis was working with interesting directors making interesting choices and having I wonder your, if anyone could get him to actually engage artistically again I mean, I, it feels like it'd have to be a good director because like, that's yeah. the thing Is like because again I think we said on the Death Becomes episode but the last time that he was actively engaged was that one-two punch of Moonrise Kingdom and Looper in 2012 yeah and those two like I hate
0: this word, but autoras directors, like, you know. So maybe Anderson just needs to come knocking again. And, yeah. yeah, I mean,
1: and I think, I mean, obviously he's worked with, he's done, he did Glass, but he's kind of like the least important part of Glass in comparison to to James McAvoy and Taylor Joy and Samuel L. Jackson and everything like that. Is definitely kind of like he's he's not fully switched on. I heard he's good in Marvelous Brooklyn, but again, that's a movie that doesn't exist at this point. <laughs> but It's still like the most mainstream film that he's done that isn't directed by M Night Shyamalan. Um, God, yeah. like you watch this movie and you go, like, this is such a perfect. Reckoning of Bruce Willis's kind mm-hmm. of like movie star persona at this point in time, putting him perfectly into this world, making him the everyman in the, and a grounding force for you in this movie. Yeah. He fully understands what it is. He's funny. He's charming. Yeah. Um, he he nails the comedic elements to it. And and five years after this, it's kind of like he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> Which is wacky to think about. And
0: by the film standards he dresses normally. Like he's in like vests and, and, and T shirts and a suit and stuff like that. Admittedly, a bright orange vest with like a big hole cut out at the back of it, but you know. For the film standards, he's normal looking, and, you know, this is not me critiquing, this is just factual, like, if we look at, like, the generic form of masculinity, all of the men in this movie are in some way, like, inept, bumbling, effeminate, all of these things. I mean, maybe, not the president, but, shout-out for giving Tiny Lister a role that isn't giant meathead, by the way, but he is just the he's the only competent person, almost. I hate the trope of, like, the rushed romance, like, we've got two hours, they're gonna fall in love, it's gonna be the most all-conquering love of all time. I don't like it here, and there's some gross stuff around, like, you know, him immediately falling for this woman he can't understand, who is somewhat infantile, and kissing her when she's unconscious. However, he is so good as a romantic actor, an element that is, like, forgotten about him because, like, he got so down the whole of... of action movies, but he is a fundamentally great romantic actor. Yeah, and and only, he sells that like the way he looks at her, the way he talks to her, and everything. It, it, he
1: he makes that work. Yeah, the, the only reason why by the end of the movie you're not kind of like throwing things at the screen because of how forced it is is because like he is selling it in every single scene that he needs to. The, as you say, like the way that he looks at her, his reactions to things that she says. It's it's, Just it, it's take
0: out could... the scene where he kisses her while she's unconscious. That's <laughs> all I'm asking. <laughs>
1: And again, like and he nails the comedy, like yeah. I like, I'm still confused to this day about how he doesn't end up killing the, the general in his fridge. <laughs> Because like the last time you see him yeah. for a little while is like he's frozen to death in his fridge in his room when he's like confused yeah. about what happens when you put away the bed and when you put away the fridge of one. Where we
0: do like a five-minute, almost more common-wise in the future routine where you know we've got we were trapping them in the fridge, we're putting Lilo in the shower which has an auto wash, we're trapping Cornelius in the in the like vacuum-sealed bed and he almost suffocates to death. And all this shit happening, and then like the three army people are like literally thrown by the time that all wraps up.
1: Yeah, and I was just like, they're dead, right? They, they, they've died. No, they're and then he's just frozen. there at
0: the end to, to have his little comedy moments with the negotiation. And like, you know, where he learn to negotiate like that? I wonder. <laughs> because his tactic is to shoot the leader
1: square in the head. I, I mean, um, I mean before, before we move on, I love the, the set design of this little room. Like, yeah. there's so much personality know. in this little room. Like, it's so well set des- and just so much I mean like the fucking scene where he's eating or, is it noodles or sushi or, or whatever it is from the from the Asian yeah, uh, the the, the, like, the Asian chef
0: where he like pulls up to his window and you're supposed to believe he's somewhere and like you can tell if you look in the background but then like that barge then like flies away and it turns out it was all just his window
1: kind of thing in his tiny little apartment that like absolutely terrible business plan yeah <laughs> Ultimately, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to one person at a time, and it's a. I have to go to their house and sit with them whilst they finish eating. I don't know if he has to. I think he just likes Corbin. Corbin's no, no. no. Can you then? imagine if your like delivery driver had to come and sit in your house whilst they eat and talk to you the entire time? <laughs> Yeah, and like, you know, the yellow dots.
0: Everyone has to put their hands in the yellow circles. And, you know, they carry that over to the airport when Tricky is, like, starting shit <laughs> with airport security. And then he has to put his hands in the yellow circles. A lot so. of, like, weird kind of, like, UK people. How does Lee
1: Evans them? end up in this movie? There's <laughs> a little sailor boy... There's like one of the few named characters in this movie. I mean, where is this in Lee Evans' career? Because obviously, Lee Evans has been retired for a good long while at this point. He's he is touring. Obviously, he isn't at the point of like the superstardom he would reach for his like kind of like last three or four. But he did do a little run of acting,
0: like you know, he's in he's in mouse Trap. He's I got he's know. got Mouse Hunt. He's got there's something about Mary or like yeah. The two yeah, big yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just assume it's that like most of this cast seem to outside of the big people seems to be made up of just like dancers, singers eclectic
1: weirdos essentially yeah, I mean, we that Bessel vibes is, with is Luke Bessel just good friends with massive attack and just like <laughs> yeah want to come hang out on set I assume so <laughs>
0: like he's like I don't care if you can act like all of the visual design will do the work like <laughs> I mean the only one that really froze me is is not Colin Hanks <laughs> the design of his apartment is great and, and you know, he's great in the cab scene, narrating the whole thing and just firing off action movie cliches one after the other, but fuck it, we're all having fun. And then, you know, the misunderstanding with the ticket and everybody converging to claim that they are Corbin Dallas and they won the tickets to the, to the cruise ship and everything is really funny. David being like, I thought he was going to kill me and all he does is just grab him and push it. Is great, uh, and then like you know, he goes full die. Well, no, he has his he has his brief moment with uh, with Ruby Rod, uh, where he just is refusing to engage with this flamboyant DJ who wants him to give him a soundbite, and he just
1: says yes and like thrilled. And stuff right, like. Okay, so so I know we did we, I know we did Chris Tucker at the top, uh-huh. but we have to brief Ruby, Ruby Rod question. Rod. Yes, so the year is twenty two. Mm-hmm. We're expected to believe that the most popular form of entertainment in 2063 is an audio-only medium that you have to listen to live? At 5pm. Yeah. It bodes well for this podcast.
0: You know, like... <laughs> we are closer to the right direction than all of the streamers
1: and the YouTubers and the actors, you know? It's just a joke, there's no visual element to it. Like, there's all these people. I mean, they don't even do the thing where they cut to the people at home. To I mean, like... maybe sometimes it's video as well, and just he also has a radio. I don't fucking But, know, like, this like... would be a ratings hit if he was recording it from inside the ship. Instead, it's just like people are listening to gunshots and Ruby Rod kind of like, <laughs> like screaming in the middle. <laughs> Can't help me,
0: God, man, can help me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, you know, there are pictures of him and, and all of this, and he, he is famous, but, yeah, like, and you can... I love that you can see Bruce Willis trying not to laugh if you look at anyone other than Ruby for, like, more than a second while he's doing his whole shtick. And then Bruce Willis goes full die-hard mode. They're just, like, for five to ten minutes just do some uh, John McClane. And he's like, yeah, okay, fine, fuck it. Yeah, sure, I think he gets to shoot one of the Mangalores in the head so it's, all, <laughs> all fun and it's just great in the whole thing, like, you know, like, chucking the bomb and doing the seesaw and all of that shit and, like, counting, in, you know, doing his Ethan Hunt impression where he can just count people just like that. Ruby Rod is... <laughs> It's great. Yeah, you know, I, I guess we've already covered it mostly, but, like, what a tour de force immediately. Like, whether you want to call it good or bad, that is
1: just... He has a it, presence. It, 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 it's it's a, a person announcing themselves as a force to be reckoned with whether or not you like it or not. Yeah. And, like, obviously, like, one of his first big scenes in the movie is, like, oh, let's do a oral sex scene but it's going to be interspersed <laughs> with so many random things take going on off. at the same time <laughs> don't they they take Tricky being blown up and have that like literally seconds before. orgasm yes yeah uh, it's not a subtle movie <laughs> it's not no it's not a subtle. and again it, it's it's the juvenile stuff where it's like every so often when it happens you're like I was really vibing with this and then there's just something that feels like it's like a 15 year old boy's kind of like lecturing yeah. fantasy kind of like being on the page
0: but then like there's not there's nothing to dwell on for
1: very long because no. we'll just move straight on <laughs> I mean, I I guess the only person left to talk about is Ian Holm, who... I mean, it's Ian Holm, he brings the gravitas to the role, but it's fairly thankless in that it's mostly kind of... mostly kind of, like, backstory and, and filling stuff in. But he does get a little bit of comedy stuff, like when he falls out the top of the spaceship and his scene where, like, he almost lets where well, he almost let Zorg choke to death and stuff like that. He gets enough comedy that it doesn't feel completely wasted, but his role is fundamentally supposed to be just kind of, like, ditzy out of his depth, but also yeah, he's, font he's, of knowledge.
0: Yeah, he's stammery, he, he's clumsy, he, you know, it's a, it's a bomb, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's just a solid hand, isn't he? And he's someone for Gary Oldman to act off for a couple of minutes and to, and to provide exposition, and he's game for it, and it all works um he's good don't know if you know but Sir Ian Holm is quite good yeah I mean we we've got over everything really like it is it is a wacky film it is all over the place there is a sense of pessimism that is completely offset by the sense of wonder like you know It is a future where, like, there has clearly been uh, large amounts of environmental issues and, like, it's smoggy everywhere and everything, and, like, people are responsible for everything bad that has happened, and I think Basson said that his aim was for you to sort of agree with Lilo when she says, is life worth saving given what you do with it? But at the same time, it's like, look how fucking fun the future is! And then love conquers all, because uh, love is the strongest magic, Benjamin. Yeah, I love
1: it, it. It's, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting movie that I wish more movies were like I just also wish that this one was like almost like I wish it wasn't an idea he had when he was 15, 16 I wish it was something he'd done when he was like more of a mature person kind of thing Not yeah but mean, do you lose thing. the sense of like
0: wonder and the like the
1: brightness of it all maybe potentially I mean maybe I watch Valerian and I'm like oh this is the version of the Elmen that I no, wanted no, no, no. <laughs> trust me you could <laughs> <laughs> just had to put it out
0: there people like, just it. kept trying to make Dean uh, DeHaan have and it just Nah, he's the creepy kid from Chronicle forever. Yeah, uh, um, everyone invested all the wrong t- all the time into the wrong
1: act from that movie.
0: Sure, fucking did. I mean, it's not like Michael B. Jordan has done badly for himself,
1: is it? No, uh, but he definitely <laughs> wasn't. Definitely, we weren't coming out of that movie and going like seeing Michael B. Jordan get acting roles because he does he does Friday Night Lights after Chronicle. No, he looks real fucking young in Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights, he's on two thousand nine, two thousand eleven, and Chronicle is two thousand twelve. Okay, so he's after Friday Night Lights.
0: Yeah. When I saw him in Friday Night. Like, I was like taken aback by how young he looked. So, and I've never seen the wire, so I haven't seen Child Michael. B.
1: I've probably seen like a snippet of it at some point. But it's a fun movie. It's definitely like it, it's weird because obviously we're now getting into like there was a, a point where we had three science fiction movies in like a very close thing. I know. It would have been fun to do Men in Black as well, but... It would have been fun to do Men in Black. It would have been fun to contrast, because we're doing uh, Fifth Element, Men in Black, and then Unnamed Third Movie, which, if you know what's coming out at the end of this decade, you've probably figured out what it is, but... Not The Matrix. Um... <laughs> oh, still sore. Still sore. Well,
0: speaking of oral sex, a few minutes ago... <laughs> <laughs> the
1: worst transition you've ever done.
0: I know. However, next week, for episode 69... We will be doing Boogie Nights. I'm excited.
1: I think that the the local cinema I've got free tickets to is doing, like, a, a Paul Thomas Anderson, like, season. And so I'm like, oh, I finally get to, like, maybe I finally get to see Hard Eight, like, the one Anderson movie that I've not seen before.
0: Yeah. No one has.
1: Definitely not planned that it was going to be episode
0: 69. Definitely something we discovered today. That's fun. But that is next week. Until then, as always, we have one question to answer. And Benjamin, it is your turn to try and answer it this week. Will there be movies? There will be movies, but they'll certainly have less multipasses. Bye.
1: Bye.